all-sustaining God, where else shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Because we cannot live by bread alone, but we need every word that comes from your mouth. For all scripture is breathed out by you for our benefit. So teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Especially as we now open your word, we know that Christ, you're teaching us through your word. Give us ears to hear you with the full reverence and attention you deserve, for you can change us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We will be in Revelation chapter 3 as we cover now our fifth passion, apathy. So I'll be watching. I'll be watching. Who's going to fall asleep tonight? (laughs) All right. Okay, Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14 is where we will be. Is Christianity a pleasant drift toward heaven? You know, like the song, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Um, Life is but a dream. Or is Christianity a treacherous journey toward heaven? So there's a really renowned book in which there's a conversation early in the journey of this book. And it says this, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step into the road and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. Do you realize that this is the very path that goes through Mirkwood, where the giant spiders are? And that if you let it, it might take you to the Lonely Mountain or even further and to worse places? And Frodo explained that Bilbo used to tell him that whenever he stepped on the path outside the front door of their house, especially after he had been out on a long walk. And the company with Frodo hears all that and goes, oh yeah, that's nice. Um, But they stretch out their legs on the ground for lunch and a nap, and Pippin says, well, the road won't sweep me anywhere for at least an hour, and they eat and take a nap. Um, I fear that that is our reaction to the Christian faith and to the gospel. We say, yep, I will step out the door and I will begin it. And then we kind of carelessly just go down the path. And when I look at um, sort of the presentation we get of Christians in our culture, and when when I take a quick sample of the people I talk to who are Christians and their idea of what it means to live a Christian life, Um, And I mean very broad. I'm being very broad here about the people I talk to. This is not just you guys. Um, In fact, it's not most of you at all. Um, But I get the sense that Christianity to a lot of people is a nice ride. It's getting out of the hardships of of those stupid things and now having purpose. And they're they're so excited to get in the salvation boat, but then they just kind of drift they go down and they're just like, okay, cool. Heaven's coming one day. And it's just kind of coasting and waiting until heaven happens. But what I love about the Lord of the Rings is, of course, it's grand picture of the journey of a Christian walking out the gospel. But it's that line about the caution of early in the journey. Do you know what you're on? You're on The path you're on leads to all kinds of places. And if you don't watch your feet, you don't know where you will end up. And brothers and sisters, when you come to Christ and begin the gospel salvation path, be careful because you have officially betrayed your king. I don't mean Christ. You betrayed the devil who held you in his kingdom. And he does not like traitors or take them lightly. The demons are at his disposal to reclaim you. 
And without discussions about are you saved once and always or not, that's for a whole, that's not even worth the discussion because it's kind of people wanting an excuse to, anyways, that's just not worth the discussion. Um, they're after you. We need to understand that salvation is a journey. It starts, my salvation started when I said yes to Christ. It was a decision I made. That's when my salvation started. But row, row, row your boat, Christianity stays there. I made the decision and I'm good. I'm good. But then there is so much we're missing about what salvation is. It's as if the majority of Christians have completely lost sight of salvation. What is salvation? What does it mean to you to be saved? Well, the majority of people would say, it means that Christ has forgiven my sins and I'm not going to hell. When did that happen? It happened when I received Christ into my heart. Okay, so by definition, you have nothing else going on. You're just literally waiting for heaven. So you might as well get in the boat and row it and have a nice little time. If this is our understanding of salvation, you're complete and I don't have a clue why you're here. Salvation is, that's, okay, that's like saying baseball is a bat. There's a lot of things I can do with a bat. And baseball has a lot of more components than a bat. Salvation, yes, starts with my decision, my coming to Christ and receiving forgiveness for my sins. But it continues in my direction. Salvation is a journey in which I am not just forgiven of my sins, but I am freed from my sins. You hear me? There are a lot of Christians who are forgiven, but they don't live any different than anyone else. They don't change in their thoughts. For 20 years, they haven't changed. In fact, in 20 years, they're probably more like the world than they were when they first came to be with Christ. So my decision leads to a direction in which I am being liberated and I'm becoming more like Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, if I lived 200 years, that work would never end. You understand? I will never stop freeing myself from sin because there's always a part of me under the sway of the devil or so unlike Christ. Starts with the decision, continues with our direction. It ends with our destination. What is our destination? Yeah, you can say heaven. But more specifically, what about heaven? Is that where we get to row, row, row our boat? No. That's where we're united with Christ, completely and perfectly one with him. And that's what we were made for. And that's what we will be forever. Now, that journey of becoming one with Christ, this is our destiny. It's our climax. It is not the end of the game. You will forever become more one with God and never be completely and totally like God because you're a creature and he's the creator. We have so much to look forward to in eternity. This is what salvation is. It is becoming one with God. So we cannot merely drift because Peter warns us in his letter, chapter five, verse eight, first Peter five, eight, he says, be sober and be watchful. Watch your feet because you don't know where the road's gonna take you. Be sober, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, roar, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants you off the path. He wants you stuck right where you are, as you are, forever. And if he can, to demonize you. God wants us to be like him. The devil wants us to be like him. And every decision we make goes down one way or the other. This is why we cannot drift, because your enemy is awake, he's watchful, he's hungry. And if we're not awake, your soul's going to be chewed on, and you're going to have eight fangs sinking into your heart, which is, remember, what the passions are. There are eight cracks in our hearts. We're fallen, and we've got these eight weak spots, and the devil uses eight tools to try to wrench those cracks open and exploit us. These are his entry points into having his way with us. They are greed, lust, well, gluttony, lust, greed, anger, 
tonight, apathy, despondency, self-esteem, and pride. Remember that the passions are not something we have. The passions are things that have us. They have us. They own us. They use us. We become passive. So here's what we, I want to remind everybody every week because it is so easy for us to fall into despair and to say, oh, this is me. This is me for the fifth week in a row. That's me. And to feel like the worst person on the planet and that God is mad at you. Nope, he's not. God is not mad at you. He's mad at the devil. He's mad at sin. He's mad at how these forces hurt his people and mar his image within us. He wants to heal you. And the whole reason I'm doing this gross work of looking at these passions and sometimes having to wrestle with them because when you become aware, you become aware. Do you know what I mean? Has that been happening to you guys over the last few weeks? Um, I feel like you're making worse progress, like regress every week. Uh, because, look, I don't remember what I say anymore. Oh, yeah, he's bringing it to our, we're bringing this to our attention so that we can say, Father, heal us. Have mercy and heal us, for we have sinned against you. That's the goal. We're after healing. Because Jesus said, I come for the sick, not the well. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's Matthew 9. So here we go. The passion of apathy. Okay, so traditionally it's called sloth. Um, But I've chosen to stay away from the word sloth because to me, and I think to most of us, sloth implies a slowness of getting to things. But apathy does not only include a slowness to getting to things. It also includes a quickness of getting out of things. So the problem with apathy is that it, on one hand, moves too slow. And on the other hand, it moves too fast. So I'm going with the word apathy. Besides, uh, apathy also brings the idea of indifference and just sort of checking out altogether. It does not necessarily look like somebody laying on a couch eating potato chips and drinking Diet Coke for eight hours a day, watching the same reruns of Friends. That's not necessarily what's, that that is apathy, but that's not the only way that apathy works. Because some of us, and I know like Pastor Dan, would never say, that's not me ever. A man can't even sleep past 5 a.m. every day. It's no joke. He cannot sleep past 5 (laughs) some of us wish we had that gift (laughs) so apathy moves too slow and too fast so too slow here's how it works apathy struggles to begin stuff i think this is where we usually start when we think of sloth and apathy it's like oh yeah i just have a hard time getting stuff done remember last summer we were in the proverbs and uh you might remember we covered proverbs 26 and there was this uh these four verses about the sluggard the Proverbs, some of the most colorful language in the Proverbs is about the sluggard. I love it. I love to tell it to my students, too. Actually, I never do. It's always in my head. I never say it out loud, though. Um, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. The sluggard says, basically, I can't get to it because there's all kinds of opposition. Then the next verse, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard turn on his bed. Ouch. By the way, the snooze alarm is the worst invention in the history of sluggardness. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. This, this is pathetic to me. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wearies him. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth. That's actually my son. Mama, feed me. I can't do it. He can do it. He just... Now we know what we need to work on. Uh, The sluggard, lastly, says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Sometimes the sluggard doesn't do things because he knows better than all those fools who are working themselves to the bone. I know better. So yeah, it can, um, we have a struggle to begin. We move too slow physically, but this is also spiritually. Spiritually, we can get slow to prayer. Uh, I don't feel like it today. I'll just put it off. Or we get slow to get to the word, or we're slow to get to church, or we're, you know, we just have a hard time getting ourselves to engage with God. 
or we get complacent. Oh, my communion with God's fine. My holiness is fine. Okay. What happens at this part is we forget the wide gap between my finiteness and his infiniteness. We forget that gap. That's when I get complacent. I start to actually get delusioned with the idea that I've made some good strides. I'm doing pretty good. I can take it easy. Uh, Well, last I checked, I'm very far behind who God is. But it also moves too fast. Apathy struggles to begin, but it also struggles to finish. It struggles to finish. Um, It was called, um, among the really old church writers, they called apathy the noonday demon. Because for the monks, when they were spending their days in their labors and prayers, it was around the middle of the day that they really got bored. They start looking around like, I wonder if Joe is still praying. I wonder if Albert needs someone to talk to. I wonder if I could go see Mark and visit him if he needs anything. Suddenly you get all these ideas and it it should get you away from prayer. That's how they described it. Um, But we relate to this, the noonday demon, we relate to this at the midpoint of any project. All of a sudden, we're pretty happy with what we started, but now we're starting to look for another project. Because the last half just seems a little bit too, there's too many kinks to work out. This is where we experience that. Um, the apathy can tend to need a sense, uh, can tend to desire uh, novelty. The, the apathy novelty is really messing me up. Apathy can desire novelty because it just gets bored with the same. Um, by the way, that's not necessarily good. Sometimes novelty is good, but sometimes really what you're doing is you're looking at everything else saying, the grass is greener there and there, and so you jump around. You're quick to get out of what you're doing to go over there and there because the grass is greener. But here's the truth about apathy. The grass will always, always, always be greener over there or there if you fail to take care of your own lawn. Every time. And so you will never be done with looking or seeing that something's better. Um, and then apathy hates commitment because apathy wants to have an endless series of open options. In fact, we, we can see this. Um, sometimes people are um, apathetic about the person they're dating because they don't want to get stuck in marriage. <laughs> They're apathetic about applying to college because they just can't make up their mind. They don't want to commit to something. Or they're apathetic about joining a church because, you know, you go down the list. We want to keep our options open. We want to be free. That's that's when apathy is working too quick. And it's saying, jump out of this, jump out. Keep an escape option open. So all this leads to one major characteristic about the soul when apathy, the passion, has taken us is that you begin to welcome distraction. Distraction is no longer a problem. You're actually looking for distraction when apathy has you. For example, you're looking for anything that delays your engagement with something or your commitment to something, like flitting to and fro from task to task. Sometimes we call this multitasking, And sometimes it's a legitimate thing we're doing, but sometimes it's actually because we are too apathetic to fully engage in one task. It looks like scrolling down Facebook or Instagram or web pages or blogs or television shows, the endless scroll. Because you don't mind the fact that, oh, just one more keeps me from having to you know what? Uh, it looks like meandering or lingering through the store. You got to go do some errands. I'm being productive while you take your sweet little time way overdoing it because you don't want to get to the next thing on the list. It looks like sleeping too late or staying up too late. I know for me, staying up too late is often because I don't want to get to the next day. That's apathy. Um, it's starting but never finishing. It's finding excuses to break routines. Oh, I know I pray every morning, but today, I mean, I prayed so long last night, I just earned a break. It's indecision, putting off action because you just don't want to 
go through with what's coming. A lot of heroes in some stories have the problem of indecision because they know what's going to be demanded of them, but they would rather just, eh, until someone pushes me into the action. Um, It also looks like criticizing or micromanaging others. You know why? Because when you are inactive in your own life, you get active in other people's lives. And way more often, I'll, teach, I'll tell you from my experience of things, the church. <laughs> way more often than not, those who criticize you or your church are those who are the least involved. They think they're involved by their words because that means I don't have to commit and I don't have to do something. I can make you do things for me. Um, and you see this, it's the same thing. When you, when you see people watching sports and they start criticizing players, how could you not hit that 102 mile an hour fastball? I always think, you've never played, have you? That's what criticism is. And micromanaging others, it's, it's this, you're not in the game, so you get in the game by managing other people. And so we need to be careful of that critical spirit that's a byproduct of apathy. Okay. Sounds like I already covered the problem of apathy, doesn't it? Nope. (laughs) Here we go. Um, We will get to Revelation 3 right about now. But let me say this first. The problem with apathy, general statement here, is that apathy plunders our participation with God. Apathy, Apathy plunders our participation with God. We let the guard down, and then the demons plunder any ability to work with God. Or put it another way, it's an unwillingness to participate in God's will. It's an unwillingness to participate in his will. I don't, I don't want to do that. Or it's um, settling the soul for anything less than union with Christ. That's good enough. I'm good. So it's apathy plunders our participation in God's purposes. Okay, so we're going to see this in Thyatira. I'm sorry, Laodicea. It's one. Of, it's the seventh church that John writes to in Revelation. He writes to seven churches. Uh, likely, it's believed he had oversight of all seven of these, and so he is writing Christ's words to these churches. Laodicea is the seventh and last, and it's also been the subject of much fascination by many people, I think, as many relate to it. So, in Revelation 3, verse 14, we read, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's who Christ is. This is the words of Christ. He's described as the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Real quick housekeeping note. Um, if anybody knows how to put the warmer setting on the AC, I notice it got really cold all of a sudden. So thank you. Someone did that here. Um, there's one in the food closet area, and there's one over here. So if any of you guys know about those buttons, maybe you could 
Thank you guys. They got it, I think. Okay. Um, all right. So here we go. The church in Laodicea. We see that the primary problem here is that they are neither cold nor hot. Now, God pleads that they would be cold or hot. But because you're neither, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. What we see in these verses is that the problem with apathy is that it empties our power in society. The church is completely powerless in its culture, in its society, when apathy takes over us. Now, how do you see that here, Pastor Brandon? Well, because if you do some digging on the Laodicean situation, you will learn that Laodicea had no natural water supply for its city. They had to import its water from other sources, which, of course, back in a day um, before pump stations and everything, that, that would have been quite an ordeal. So Laodicea had water. Uh, they tried several things. Um, they tried to bring water from the hot springs in Murrieta. Just kidding. The hot springs in a, a city called Hierapolis, which was just down a little bit. And the hot springs were famous. Travelers would come and they would sit in the jacuzzi-like hot springs and they would find refreshment and healing. Those waters were well-renowned. So they tried to pipe those waters from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. But the problem with hot spring water is, well, when it's hard to drink, Two, um, it corroded the pipes. It filled them with minerals on the way through the pipe system. So they found that that water was actually making people sick by the time it got to their mouths. And they would literally be spewing it out. The other alternative was to get the water from Colossae, which was a town uh, just, well, you know the book of Colossians. It was, a, it was a city just below the mountains of Colossae, and there would be some snow melt and runoff. And, but by the time, same problems, by the time they got the water to Laodicea, it was tepid, and it was disgusting, and again, some problems with piping. It, it, it made people sick. So when God is telling the Laodiceans, I wish that you were either hot or cold, it's very likely that he's putting in their minds these concepts of, if only we could have the water of Colossae, fresh mountain spring glacier water. Or if only we could just sit in the hot springs of Hierapolis and just heal ourselves. It's possible that they are thinking of these situations. And when God says that you are lukewarm and I'm going to spew you out of your mouth, my mouth, you know what I'm saying, church. They know that you have come to the point where you are neither refreshing nor healing, and instead you are making me quite sick. If a church is making God sick, what is it doing to the society? Now, God says, I wish that you were hot or cold. It probably doesn't mean I wish that you were on fire for me or totally against me. I don't know that God wishes that anyone's totally against him. Um, it probably means I wish that you stopped being this tepid, apathetic Christianity, which is making absolutely no difference in its culture. I wish that you would be either cold or hot so that people notice the healing and refreshing power of the gospel and can actually stomach something that will heal them rather than make them sick. Because humanity is diseased with the passions of the heart. But the church exists to heal people. The gospel exists to free people. So, if Christianity will not bring humanity to be one with divinity, if Christianity can't be the source of bringing people back to the God whom we've sinned against, then what is the purpose of it? That church is simply another social club within the society. We don't need more of those. And if you're into interesting social things, there are probably a hundred better clubs. Biking, knitting, baseball, Harry Potter, and I meant Lord of the Rings, but that one too, I guess. Um, all of those. There's better clubs, right? This is not why we exist. We are not a club with social membership. Um, that was nothing about membership. I just realized that word was kind of bordered something else. Um, but we were not like, that's not what we're here for. We exist to bring people, humans, back to their maker. 
And if we aren't that ourselves, then how's that going to happen? Because the reason the church exists is to be one with God so that we can bring others to be one with God. We've been called a priesthood, which means we go from worship to God to the people and from the people to worship of God. We go in between. But the church in Laodicea is tepid, it's lukewarm, it's apathetic, and God is sickened by its existence. May the Lord have mercy on Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks that we do not sicken him with our existence and all our other churches. Um, That's the first problem. It empties our power in society. But it also empties our treasury in Christ. This is verse 17. It empties our treasury in Christ. For you say, (laughs) God's just like, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's one of the biggest problems about apathy is it doesn't let us see how little we have. Proverbs 24, verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Plundered by not watching Watch your feet, for you do not know where the road may take you. Plundered, because you're not watching. This, of course, is true of your physical well-being and your finances and your work, but this is very much true of our soul. For in Christ, we have an abundant treasury. You know, we, uh, before Lent, we, this was our opening to the service every week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, some people pay attention, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What does that say? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He didn't say, well, when you climb this ladder or say this many prayers or do this many good deeds, you have it. In Christ, the access to the treasury of heaven is open. It's yours. You have it. Apathy is what keeps us from receiving and claiming and walking in everything that we've been given through Christ. So apathy is a plundering of what we have in him simply by moving too slow or bailing out on what God's doing in our lives. John Chrysostom, that great third, fifth century preacher, Chrysostom means golden-mouthed. John the golden-mouthed said, the spiritual treasure, this spiritual treasure, is proof against theft. That God's given us everything. When it is stored in the recesses of our mind, it is secure against every stratagem of the devil, provided we don't become slothful and give entry to one to the one anxious to deprive us of it our enemy remember i mean the the wicked demon um when he sees spiritual wealth accumulated he grinds his teeth and rages and displays great vigilance so as to take advantage of the right moment to steal something of what we have within us No such moment will suit his convenience, provided we are not guilty of sloth. Old way of saying, in other words, um, he will never get in and plunder if you are never apathetic. It behooves us, therefore, to remain constantly on the alert and to impede his every approach. So... It's here. Brothers and sisters, we have right now everything we need for life and godliness. We have the treasury of heaven open to us. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, there's, a, there's an old prayer that says, that calls the Holy Spirit the treasury of good and giver of life. Treasury of good. 
he brings the wealth of heaven into our souls. And he will guard it so long as we keep watch. Man, the devil, like that roaring lion, wants to take your peace, your love, your hope, this union that you have with God, your witness, the power of the Spirit in your life, your thankfulness. He wants to take every blessing we have in Christ and plunder your storehouse. He wants to completely empty you so that he can then fill you with the passions. This is the problem with apathy, is it completely renders Christianity meaningless. We need to ask ourselves, are we as Christians doing the work we're on earth to do? When I was growing up, that was the dreaded conversation, because you know what they always said is, you need to go door to door and talk to people and you need to pass out tracts at the mall. I don't know why that, I guess it was a generational thing, maybe because it's kind of the thing I grew up in. Um, that's not at all what I'm telling you to do. Some people are called to that, and that's great. Please do what you're called to do. Some people are not. Please don't do what you're not called to do because you will resent the church and God for whatever it is you're doing that you're forced to do. Um, we need to ask ourselves if we are hot or cold or if we are instead tepid and lukewarm. And that means apathetic, which means we are not receiving from God daily the storehouse of his treasury, but rather we are row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, not even thinking about what lies at the end of the stream, by the way. We need to understand that we are on a path called salvation and it requires we keep taking steps if we are to be powerful in this world. Now, here we go. We see the world's moving rapidly, don't we? Just in the back room, five minutes before service, an interesting conversation was going about. We knew things were moving toward the end, but things seem to be moving rapidly. Yeah, a lot of things are happening. Um, Also, what I see with that, should the Lord not return, is persecution is coming very rapidly. Now, it will hit us financially first. The church will be, the good old cultural word, canceled. So if you associate with Christ, you will be canceled from certain jobs or from certain financial opportunities, and we will feel the pinch that way first. And then gradually that won't be enough, and so then they'll start to dehumanize us and hurt us and kill us. And yep, that's coming. I don't know how soon. Some of you are like, oh, I'm so glad I'm like older than him. (laughs) Um, Here's the thing. Um, we see historically that when persecution hits a church, the church becomes dynamically powerful because you have no room for apathy in the midst of suffering. The apathetic leave. And then you have people who are hot and cold remaining. So on one hand, that's a lot to look forward to. Um, but that's where we see, so I, I, I see with Christianity on the wane in our culture, it precisely goes hand in hand with the apathy that we see plaguing Christianity. And we've lost sight of why we're saved, so we've lost sight of why we exist. So what we basically do is we, we're, Christians are not known for healing people from the passions, for bringing them into union with Christ. Christians are known for their stance mostly against homosexuality or other social issues. Wow, it's like a political position. That's lukewarm, friends. We live a different way than the world. We hold different values in the world. We live in a different kingdom than the world. And we must ensure that our lives are aligned with that. Um, so how do we overcome apathy? How do we overcome this lack of watchfulness? How do we stop bailing out or not starting? How do we stop allowing the devil to plunder us and the church and Christianity? How do we stand up to this? How do we find an end? Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. All of a sudden we learned that the direction we're taking on this salvation path, as hazardous and treacherous as it is, there are footsteps in the path. Christ, our champion, has already walked it. He knows the pitfalls. He knows the turns. He knows the seductions. He's overcome. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. I've overcome the flesh. I've overcome the devil. And you will also conquer if you will Walk with me. Throw off the apathy of your rags, O sinner. O pitiful, wretched, and poor, and blind man. And come and buy from me gold. Come and get from me wool. Come and get from me salve to heal your eyes. So that you may walk in my footsteps of victory. This is what we're called to. We're called to conquer in the hero who's conquered before us. So all we have to do is learn how to conquer like him. To follow in his steps. We're not making this up. And as soon as we're making this up, we are seeking novelty, which means we are in the midst of apathy. We are not making this up. We're following him. And this is what Christ gives to us when we follow in his steps. He gives us the virtue that will overcome apathy, courage. He gives us courage. Or put another way, sometimes the word fortitude is used. Or, um, as I prefer, sometimes, sometimes words change, right, over time. And when we hear of courage, we think of simply wildly running into battle like a maniac. Um, courage is bigger than that. So I like to add to it also the word grit. Courage gives us the bravery to start things despite the opposition, despite the hindrances, but courage also gives us the grit, the gumption, the determination, the perseverance to stick with what we're doing when we are oppressed, when things aren't working, when we're discouraged, and when we just flat out feel like it's not what I want to do right now. Courage is all of this. Courage is what we award good soldiers for. Courage is what Christ had when he took the cross, not only to face the cross, but to keep carrying the cross when all hell was breaking loose upon him. Courage is what will help us to get on the salvation path, to keep walking the salvation path until we find ourselves face to face with our conqueror. That is what he gives to us is courage. So how do we acquire this courage? How do we stand up with strength to get out of apathy? How do we keep going when we want to quit? I have four suggestions. The first is the mildest. The others are coming from Revelation. So that's why I say it's the mildest. I would recommend this. Spend time with heroes. You know, Christ took this path, but Hebrews 11 tells us that so did Abel, so did Enoch, so did Noah, so did Abraham, so did Moses, and it goes down this list. We have many who have gone down this path. And then since the Bible canon was closed, we have, what, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, we have uh, Macrina, the, the sister of Basil, we have Francis of Assisi, we have Macarius the Great, we have, you know, you, I'm just naming some of the ones you've heard before, John Chrysostom, we have all of these saints who have gone before us, we have, um, or the ones we don't call saints who are equally as qualified, like Jonathan Edwards, or David Brainerd, or Charles Spurgeon, you can do that on this list, we have heroes, we have the gift of biographers, who tell us their stories, not just their stories, but how they lived and how they equipped themselves for these stories. Some of us have read biographies of interesting people, Steve Jobs or Stalin or Hitler or whatever. Um, But we often neglect because culture doesn't present these as heroes. The heroes of the church. We have a deep steeped history of heroes and and those who are true gladiators and those who have actually conquered the world the flesh and the devil getting to know them 
will help us to see what an unapathetic or a courageous Christian looks like. And I've learned some practices that I thought were super old-fashioned and out of touch, but then I realized that old Christians did these things, and I was like, wow, that's how you sharpen the soul and get to know some of the heroes, but especially get to know Christ, spend time with Christ. That's coming later, though, so there you go. Oh, and within our living midst, meet with your elders, people that you look up to as those who, an elder is someone who's gone through the battle ahead of you. Look at those people who have weathered and conquered, even though they're still on the path, they've been ahead of that vicious dragon lying up there. Talk with them, get to know them, get to see how they live and how they've grown. Um, This is why I love, by the way, Brittany and I, a little bit, um, real quick backstory. Some of you have heard this already, quite a lot of you, but um, we, of course, um, back when I was um, assisting Pastor Mike, we were never sure if we were going to end up here forever or go somewhere else forever. And um, one of the things that was, you know, obviously tempting was like, well, there's all these like really cool young churches that are just full of people like us. But Brittany and I both came to this conclusion that we didn't think it was healthy to be full of people like us. And I have, our desire was to stay here and to have a healthy church. And by healthy, there's many degrees of health, but one of these degrees is that there would be a wide demographic of ages. And that's that has been our heart from the beginning. And I love that I see a wide demographic of ages. I would, I would love to see more little children too, but um, pray that that grows. <laughs> but I love that we have people who are old enough to be my grandparents and we have people... Well, who are my kids? So there you go. Um, And everything in between. And I believe that that's a good sign of a healthy church because we need to understand that there are elders in our midst and we need them and we need to to learn from them. And so it's really cool when I see um, you of different ages stooping down to the lower and the lower, not disregarding the older. And that's a beautiful thing. I said this was a minor point. I meant to do it in two seconds, but there you go. It was like 20 minutes. Okay. Second way to gain courage. So um, this is verse 18 in Revelation. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. (laughs) So what here we see is that Christ is asking us to come to him and to buy from him, which means you got to spend a little bit. No, no, no. I'm not going to do an offering altar call where God will bless you if you put an extra tithe in this week. That's way out of place and not cool. Um, But what he means is you need to invest yourself and your time and your energy in him. There's no other way around this. Christianity does not spontaneously happen in your life. It takes work to grow. So we need to come to him and buy the things that we need to see, to clothe ourselves. So the way that this was put by Ambrose of Milan, he's the guy that saved Augustine, um, he, he called it the sap of ancient doctrine. We need to, in other words, tap into the sap of ancient doctrine. We need to come to Christ for the depth of our faith. For the depth of our salvation. My belief is that people are growing bored with Christianity because frankly, we are not offering anything unique. We are basically, sermons have become free therapy sessions. But people are like, I have a therapist and he's really good. Um, we are making worship about self-expression of feelings. Worship songs, I mean. Um, we're, t- we're basically dumbing down a lot of worship in our existence to get people in the door and make them feel good about themselves. Well, okay, cool. But like, that's what everyone else in the world is trying to do is make everyone feel good about themselves. It's time that we made ourselves feel good about Christ and press ourselves into him so that we change, so that the world changes. This is the problem is we stop offering the sap of ancient doctrine and have gone into wishy-washy, Jesus loves you. And why are people bored with this? Well, I love other things more. Or here, how about this? How about this? We put a little robot on Mars. 
That's Stop and think how wild that is for a minute. We can blow the world up with weapons that we made ourselves. We have figured out how to put aircraft in the sky and to transport people around the world to places that the rest of history has never dreamed of ever visiting within hours. We have, as humans, attained some great things, and we know about all of this. And then we enter into Christianity, the true God who created everything, and all we hear over and over is, oh, but God loves you and forgives you. Oh, but just live a good life. Be a moral person. Be nice. And then we're like, is this really real? We're bored because our faith goes so deep. The old writers called theology a science, the science of God. We're dumbing things down, yet we are so sophisticated in other things. We need the deep tap into the sap of ancient doctrine. And so Christ invites us to come to him and purchase, get the reward from seeking Christ. Not just, okay, I know Christ, but what are you, what is Christ giving to you? How is he giving you eyes to see? How is he clothing you? We need to know these things. So John Chrysostom, one more time said, because he was just too hard to resist. um, He said that doctrine challenges the soul and disturbs apathy. Apathy needs a challenge. And if it challenges you, it will disturb your apathy. So this is how he said it. He said, you see, the reason that the loving God did not allow all the contents of the scriptures to yield themselves spontaneously clear and obvious at first glance with scant reading was that he might disturb our sloth and we might show signs of alertness and thus reap the benefit of them shorthand uh he's saying it's really hard sometimes to read the bible because god wanted to make your sloth die in the process of understanding it it normally happens after all that matters discovered with effort and research are riveted more firmly in our minds whereas what is discovered with ease soon flies away from our heart so Far from showing indifference, I beseech you, let us stir up our thinking and make a thorough and in-depth study of the writings so as to be in a position to gain some greater benefit from them and thus go off home. There you have it. The sap of ancient doctrine. Number three, gain courage by remembering judgment and death. (laughs) 319, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. If you remember that you're going to stand before God, that's kind of like, oh yeah, what was I doing with my time? You know, trying. (laughs) Um, And that I'm going to die. That I don't have an infinite amount of time to figure things out. That'll get us out of apathy. And number four, Commune with Christ the conqueror. Commune with Christ the conqueror. You see that in verse 21 already, but look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's communion. That's union. We with him and him with us. See, the language is always this mutual indwelling. But I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, we have to open the door. I know this is so, sounds so simple, but deep inside, the majority of Christians, and I'm speaking from my experience, don't open the door. We cruise through life, we're rowing our boat, and we kind of expect God to just burst in. We wonder why we struggle with the passions, but we just keep rowing the boat because we think that, we privately hope that God will just sort of take it away when he's ready to. It's all on God. Now, there are some weird doctrines out there that will make you believe such, that you've got to literally just wait till God does it because it's all him. 
yes, God must, it's through his power that things are overcome. But here's the part we forget, that God does not work alongside people who resist his work. If he's knocking on the door, we have to open the door. This is called synergy. God has energy to heal us, to move us, to change us. And we have energy to say yes and to receive or to refuse and to do our own thing. When the two energies meet, you have synergy. And this is how Christians change. We pursue Christ and his power works in us. Philippians 2 verse 12, for example. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation? Pastor Brandon, we are not saved by works. I know. But Paul said it, not me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, don't miss this now. This is where we see synergy. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Synergy. Work out your salvation. In other words, he's not saying, go do a bunch of good things. You have to work for your salvation. You have to work to earn your salvation. He's saying, go get off your butt, kick apathy out so that you can work to grow your salvation. To grow anything requires work. Paul's asking us to work the growth of our salvation out Because he says God is right there. He's right there ready with his grace to make it happen. But we have to begin working. That's synergy. God will not, cannot, does not override our wills. He cannot overcome our apathy. Hear how St. Jerome put this. He said, um, he said, happy he whose help is the God of Jacob Do not miss the significance of the words, whose help. Then he quotes from the Gospels. He says, because of their unbelief, Jesus did not many works, did not work many works there. So apathy will stop him. Then he says this, God is our helper. While we labor with determination, he delivers us and works together with us. While we labor with determination, he delivers us and works together with us. When we are slothful, supine, irresolute. He does not set us free. Bible says it. Our church fathers have said it. You know it's true. We will never step out of the passions. We'll never be free from our sins. We will never become like God if we don't do the work of opening the door and setting the table to commune with Christ. Praise God, you're here. That's one good step. Uh, Also, you didn't fall asleep. I wasn't quite watching you, Mr. Scott, because sometimes that would discourage me, but (laughs) I think you did well. Um, No one snored, at least. It's a start, and we keep going. So, brothers and sisters, let not apathy rob or plunder you of prayer this week. Let not apathy rob or plunder you of reading the scriptures. Let not apathy rob or plunder you of keeping Christ on your mind and in your heart. Keep the simple things going. But I don't feel like anything's happening. That's apathy whispering in your ear. Do not give in to the passion or the demon of apathy, the noonday demon. Keep going. Some of you have been trying the prayer rule that we talked about on Ash Wednesday. Oh, is that about a month now? Okay, well. It's been a month. I told you to try it for a month. So hopefully you kept going. Um, as we take the step, God is there to give us the power to keep going. So, Lord, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. 
and let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be innocent and blameless of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.